You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Join us on a program called Legal Talk. And alhamdulillah, looking forward to Legal Talk uh, this evening. And uh, yes, we are joined by uh, none other than our senior attorney, Ashraf Isup. And when Ashraf Isup uh, comes onto our platform, the Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'a, people just sit back and enjoy the evening. Let me welcome you and also Ashraf Isup, senior attorney. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, Ashraf, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Walaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shabbat, alhamdulillah, I'm doing very well on this fine, as you say, beautiful evening. Indeed, it is. Um, it's it's really, really, uh, you know, into spring now, so you can already feel the change. Although it's a bit cool in the evenings and in the morning, but the days are absolutely stunning. I don't know. Uh, you're slowly beginning to see uh, the gathering of the clouds and the turning of the weather. But, you know, in the week we also had, uh, surprisingly, we had snow in parts of the country. Man. No, absolutely. And, you know, you bring it so beautifully. You make me think of nature where Allah says, Rabbul Mashriqaini wa Rabbul Mahribaini. Lords of the two east and lords of the two west. So which is it of the favors of your Lord do you deny? And the beauty of, you know, having this uh, summer solstice, winter solstice, you know, you, you find that it's our, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's winter in uh, maybe in the UK and the summer in South Africa. And then, you know, look how Allah in his perfection has certain seasonal fruits. We may have grapes. And the other part of the world will have no grapes and, uh, you know, oranges in one part of the world and, you know, bananas. But you know what the importation and with the changing uh, the signs of uh, people, you know, you know, uh, you know, what was going through my mind? Let's let's let me throw this question at you. What happens to us when we eat in this part of the world? If we eat fruits that are out of season, you know what I mean? We importing it from, even though not a grape season, but we can still import and have grapes here. When there's no, not a grape season. Talk to me about that phenomena. So I once heard that, you know, the food uh, uh, obviously grows at its time for a particular purpose. Now, in South Africa, we're absolutely blessed with almost perfect seasons and perfect weather. For example, if it's winter, we'll start seeing the citrus fruit appearing. Natchez, oranges and of course, lemons. If it's out of uh, uh, winter, then you start seeing the spring or the summer fruits, watermelon, grapes, etc. But I think in these um, days of modern commercial farming and the giant supermarkets and the power of import and export, obviously you can get plums in the middle of winter and you can get oranges for your orange juice in December, which is not seasonal. But I heard that the body, right, uses the food of the season for its fuel in order, in order to stay healthy. But generally, I believe now, for example, we consume meat in a massive, massive scale. We, we out of sync with nature and we out of sync with the health of the body. Now, even in the animal kingdom, 
when you hunt wildlife, you hunt them in the winter because you can't hunt them in the spring when they give birth because they have babies. And, uh, you know, in the summer is when they when they are again with the mother. But you can see it's too hot. But the kind of meat that you eat venison in winter is exactly what the body needs. Shafat, that's quite amazing. But as you know, with the modern lifestyle now, we can afford meat 24-7. In fact, I think we we eat meat contrary to the Sunnah. The Sunnah prescribes meat at least once in 40 days. I, I think uh, we, we're consuming far too much. Obviously, with the, with the resultant health uh, problems that we're picking up now, you can see cardiac uh, or cardi, uh, cardiac uh, related illnesses are on the increase. Then, of course, diabetes. Mm. Diabetes being uh, the fact that you become insulin resistant. But all of this uh, is typical from our diets and, and maybe our predisposition as Indians towards these things is also a factor to be taken into account. I was actually quite fascinated to read the other day that uh, rice was not uh, was not the staple diet of India. It was uh, as a result of Indonesia expanding their power uh, and them coming down to, uh, in fact, to Madagascar and, and uh, Africa as well. But it was the power of uh, growing rice as a commodity. And of course, we now know again, due to history, that the uh, corporations that were formed in Europe, being the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company's successor, uh, were looking for these uh, wonderful spices uh, that came from India and elsewhere. Uh, so they were in search of these, uh, you know, wonderful things. The two things they were looking for, spice and and cloth for the for their industrial expansion, and then ultimately you know that the the, the British uh, banned the industrial production of uh, fabric in India and broke the looms so that they could feed their own uh, industries back home. But that's a slight, slight digression. What I'm saying is today, as you point out, you could be eating fruits from the Yemen. Dates from Saudi, uh, you could be eating, uh, you know, uh, kiwi fruit from Australia, all, all at your table at the same time, uh, uh, without any effort. So, yeah, that's how the industrial production of food has, has gotten, gone on. But I believe that if we stick as, as much as possible to natural foods without excessive sugars and carbs and meat, um, then I think we, we will be able to control the or, or obtain the, the full benefits of food, Shafan. You know, you know, Ashraf, I don't know if someone told you, but you deserve a gold medal. Alhamdulillah, what a spiritual, what a dimension to talk about. Yes, the food out of season, but you're eating it and, you know, you're indulging to bulge as Ashraf said, meat. I mean, we look for any excuse to have a bright place. Because we got captured by someone, hey, you know, you're having a bribe tonight. Yeah, I got enough uh, Kurbani meat in the deep freeze and so forth. But well, 
we'll leave that aside. But we'll talk about the dietary laws, you know, but no other deen has a better dietary law uh, than Islam. Ashraf, talk to me about it. Well, you see, if we truly follow the sunnah, Shafat, then we have to eat simply. The Prophet ate barley uh, mixed with a little bit of oil and water. That was the staple diet. He also, somebody mentioned the other day, he was constantly in battle. He wasn't sitting around, you know. The Prophet was moving, was in movement, was utilizing his, uh, his uh, energy. The dietary laws of Islam, as you put it, or it, it doesn't prescribe anything, but it frowns on excessive amounts of food. Then you know the distilling of those laws in, the, in terms of the four schools, they differ. Some say certain kinds of seafood is allowed, and others say it's makru before it becomes haram, like the shellfish in the Hanafi fiqh. But in the people that lived in the coast and followed the Shafi mazhab, a shellfish, including shark and other produce of the sea, was not uh, was not forbidden because that was the food that they were exposed to. But I think the golden thread is balance. I was once told that Imam Shafi, uh, sorry, Imam Malik, said if you served more than two things on the table, it is excessive. Now, Shabbat, I can tell you. Most Indian homes, the starters are samosas and pies, especially in Ramadan. Then comes a whole lot of fries, you know, and then this exotic fry and that recipe. Then comes the main meal. No, sorry, then comes the halim. Then comes the main meal with a full cream milkshake, <laughs> also known as sarbat. I mean, you know, and then masala tea and, and, and so you you see these things also at the weddings now surely i mean it is excessive then we've also made sugar our staple uh, diet Shabbat, both in its raw form and in its hidden form the hidden form obviously is because sugar is in all the baking and breads and the sojis and Kajar alwa and whatever else. All of so, so food will have a, a, a healing property, and of course it can also have a harming property. Um, then, commenting on what you say is dietary laws, is how you eat. You know, um, the the tradition always was that you would eat from a big tray. Everyone. But in it is the hidden, the hidden secret of being generous. You see, today we have a plate in front of Ashabah. We dish our dish out. When the biryani comes, you take out the best pieces of meat and you pass it on. You know, the guy next to you is getting the same and if it runs out, there's a whole day waiting. They'll go and bring some more. Now, that kind of eating, to my view, kind of makes you selfish because, you know, you have this whole spread ahead of you. But when you eat communally from a, let's say, from a shared uh, plate, uh, usually on the floor, the, the 
adab of, of eating is to eat what is nearest to you, not go into the middle of the plate. Number two, to prefer the meat that you want to pass it on to somebody else, like you push it away and you pass it to the guy across you or next to you. And thirdly, to be absolutely certain that no grain of rice or anything is, is left on the duster pan on the floor. So you can see that how even the way we eat sitting at the table, having this plate in front of you, then having your glass of cold ring and whatever else, you know, like it's like your space. <laughs> it can't be, it can't be, uh, it can't be invaded. You know, you'll share it with your wife or your your child or somebody, but nobody else can can really come in. You know, it's offensive. But but th these are some of the things that have had an impact on us in in that a how we eat and how we how we sit together uh, with single plates as opposed to a communal plate, and then how the adab is that you prefer somebody else, and then of course when you're eating. <clears throat> from a communal plate, then you make sure that you don't eat to your full. You see, when you're sitting in the plate in front of your shafat, there's no control. You eat till you overfill the one-third, two-thirds, and sometimes uh, you go past full, you know. <laughs> so I think those are some of the things that we must just try and see how we can uh, rejuvenate. You know, what a brilliant point indeed, eating collectively eating as a family eating on a dust uh, khan you know the big plate you call it uh, you know i think the urdu name is kuncha where you know everyone should be eating from there and as you said you know you watch yourself and uh, perhaps a more baraka when you eat that way and automatically divine decree uh, blesses you and perhaps uh, you know someone said this uh, uh, the, the perhaps the worst invention was uh, the refrigerator and because of the refrigerator Man has become more gluttonous and, you know, yeah, instead of giving out the food uh, the same day, he stores his food and, you know, eats it uh, excessively. Your comments on that, Ashraf? You see, I think uh, we can't blame technology, Shafa. You know, whether it's the fridge, mm. then we're going to blame the microwave to say that instead of uh, properly heating your food with proper uh, pots that are not aluminium, that's the other bad thing Indians got is to use aluminium as opposed to copper or steel. You know, copper uh, copper pots has got a great benefit. Steel doesn't allow any of the dangerous uh, things to leach into you. The worst of the worst, Shafat, is the non-stick. They found that liver diseases have increased in Europe simply because of the prevalence of non-stick. Now, worse than that, we're nuking the food in the microwave because the whole point about technology is to make life easy for you so that theoretically you had more time to be a man of freedom and leisure. <laughs> I don't think it is like that. I think we will be going faster and faster and we have less and less time for freedom and leisure because the point about freedom, Shafat, is the free man is able to educate himself and have beneficial knowledge and improve himself and society that, that that is the meaning of freedom you know but it it appears that the more we have 
the less time we have. Now, you know, let's just take the, the age-old task of making roti at home and, and samosas. Th- those things have been replaced. You, you're buying them now in the shops, piles of the stuff. Um, bread is denuded of most nutritional value, but you're buying it off the shelf, sliced and ready for you, and it doesn't go off for a number of days. Again, you can see the that the chemical compounds in these things must be quite high. So technology itself cannot be blamed because then we're going to say, what about the car? You know, before we used to walk or ride the bicycle, now we're using the car. We're not giving ourselves exercise. Those are responsibilities that we have to take. How we use technology is up to us. Technology itself was, is not to be blamed, but the, but the users of technology are the people that, that create their own problems. That's my view anyway. Yeah, you make a lot of sense also, and you know, everything in moderation, the sunnah. I mean, generations change, but the message is always the same. You know, one-third food, one-third water, one-third empty. And alhamdulillah, those rituals that Islam gives you, you have to follow them. And then, you know, Ashraf, looking around us and, uh, you know, you said that the environment reacts uh, to man. You know, we are created as the best uh, of Allah's creation. We are Allah's vicegerent on earth. And, uh, you know, through our sinning and whatever evil we perpetrate, the environment uh, reacts around us. So we look around the the world. We look uh, China's uh, uh, there's drought in China. Uh, there's uh, floods in uh, Pakistan. Uh, there's lots of disaster zones all over the world. And perhaps it is insan uh, misbehaving himself and uh, the earth is reacting or nature is reacting to insan. What's your feel on that, Ashra? So I, I think there's cause and effect in everything, Shabbat. Of course, if we're going to keep on chopping down the Amazon rainforest, the world is going to then run out of trees that absorb carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. Those are the lungs of the world. If we overfish the seas, those fish cannot be replaced. You, you Once they extinct, they extinct. I think in South Africa, there's, there's a list of about 25 fish that are already on the endangered species list. So, of course, our, uh, our impact on nature is going to be felt. Then you have the glaciers that are melting and sea levels are rising, which means that coastal areas will be flooded. So you're going to see the destruction that you're seeing in Durban with the floods and Pakistan with those terrible floods in the week. You're going to see this kind of thing because the ground is not stable to hold back this huge force of water. But let's not make make, make a mistake. Nature has always been uh, unpredictable. It's, it's how Allah has, has created it. Uh, there have always been um, uh, uh, earthquakes. And, and, and the surah itself says that one day there will be a quake. You know, you're going to find the earth is shaking. So it's whether man contributes to his own destruction of nature is undoubtable. Whether even if he doesn't do so, Allah has decreed whatever needs to be, even the every breath of wind or every leaf that stirs is by his command, you know, is, is part of the pattern of what, what is set out. So we still have to take care. 
But you remember during COVID, uh, Shafat, the planes were not flying, the machines were not moving. The earth actually rejuvenated. You know, certain animal and plant species sprung back to life because they were not suffering with this airline fumes and car fumes. And so in those two years that the world shuddered to a stop, gave nature a chance to recover. I guess that's the pattern. We have to respect nature. Otherwise, there won't be a future. Yeah, then they, you know, they talk about carbon emission and this emission. But the irony of the uh, whole situation is, uh, even if you look at the uh, Ukrainian issue, uh, where, you know, uh, this uh, man-made, I mean, American uh, war, you know, that they perpetrated on uh, Russia and so forth, is uh, taking another turn where, you know, uh, Russia is turning off the gas pipes. And uh, suddenly, you know, these countries that were talking about cleaner emission or uh, uh, renewable energy, you know what, Ashraf? They're reverting back to... Uh, the coal, yeah, they're going back to the coal age. I mean, they uh, started uh, coal, uh, coal mining and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. Lo- looks like we uh, people are going back to the Stone Age. I-, I don't know. What's your views on that? Well, you know, I think Einstein said he doesn't know what the Third World War will be fought with, but he knows the Fourth World War will be fought with sticks and stones. So I guess that the inevitable destruction of uh, mankind as we know it with the uh, proliferation of not just nuclear weapons and hypersonic weapons. I mean, it was shocking to see that the Russians had uh, missiles that had Mark 25 speeds that could go up in the stratosphere and then come down. It's, It's absolutely incredible the kind of technology that's out there. And and it's a you know unstoppable and the new generation of fighter jets and this and drones and all that. So at the end of the day, whether we're going to revert to being ordinary people in you know in as cavemen would survive and of a, a nuclear war or a fallout is. Uh, is something that we must never, ever hope to see, because this is an age of great comfort. The the, the last hundred years of mankind's existence in terms of comfort and luxury has never, ever been experienced in the past. And unless mankind is foolish to destroy it all, you know, it is a great, really, Shabbat, it, it is it is an age of great ease. Three simple things. Right now we're talking, there's electricity. You go to a switch, you switch it off, you're in darkness. You go to the tap, you have flowing clean water. You go to your stove, you have instant heat for cooking. You know, 150 years ago, Shabbat, people had to gather water gather uh, fuel for the night, for lights, gather firewood, and make sure that you had enough to just survive the next day or the next week. That is how different it is just in 100 years. 100 years ago, flying was just an idea. Today you can get on now in a plane and you can get to Europe in seven hours. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. So 
now they're talking about space exploration. So you can see where we're headed. Let's hope we don't go backwards. Let's hope we, we continue, uh, you know, with absorbing the benefits of, of everything. Uh, whether it is penicillin that took away uh, common ailments or the ability to take an X-ray now and see what's happening in your brain instead of opening the brain to see what, you know, you know what I'm saying, Shafat, we, we, we at a great yeah. advantage in terms of, of how we've advanced as, as humankind. We mustn't be foolish enough to go and blast it all. Yeah, and you can see that, uh, but man, yeah, is very, uh, verily and ingrate, and he'll do things that will always uh, go ag against the divine decree. Well, moving on, uh, Ashraf, subhanallah, probably the first time the Quran being quoted on the opening remarks of a judgment in essay. And uh, you know what? I want you to uh, tell us about this, Ashraf. And uh, it was uh, during the week uh, that you sent me that uh, old judgment there. And it was really a sight to behold. I want you to bring it alive on uh, Marka Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah or Jama'ah on legal talk uh, this evening, Ashraf. Go for it. So obviously you're referring to the case in the labor court of uh, South Africa. This was at the Johannesburg court. It was last Monday, the 22nd of August. It was a matter between Hope Gloria Mashilo and another versus SARS, the commissioner of SARS. Basically, the background to this is quite interesting. The applicants were dismissed for operational requirements. And, but, but that was like, in terms of labor law, automatically unfair. Because the commissioner had to give fair reasons for dismissal, and he couldn't prove that. And the alternative, he, had, uh, he couldn't, he, he, he didn't use the proper structure. Uh, but the merits of it is that the court basically held the dismissal was unfair. But I don't think that's what we want to listen to. I was quite, quite surprised when I received this and I read the judgment of Setehene acting judge. In his introduction, listen to what he quotes. And I was fascinated how he got it because I looked at the legal teams and none of them were Muslims. So how did he go and take the trouble to get this as the opening remark? Because in it is valued in, in, it, in its quotation and in its weight of the words. Now listen to this. He quotes, O you who believe, stand out firmly for justice as witnesses to Allah, even as against yourself, or your parents, or your kin, and whether it be against rich or poor, for Allah can best protect both. Understand that. For Allah protects both. So he then he then says where he gets it. He says the Quran, Surah Nisa, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 135. That's a full quotation he gave. In the footnote to that, he says, Nisa in Arabic means women. It is chapter 4 of the Quran. It is so named after women as it details many pertinent issues and law regarding women 
inheritance and the rights of women. Now, it was amazing that he quoted that as the opening of his judgment. And he then goes on to say, he, he, he doesn't actually give a tafsir or doesn't go beyond that, but he lays that as the basis of his judgment, which, which is really quite fascinating. He then starts in chapter, in the first paragraph, he says, history narrates that in human tragedies, wars and skirmishes, women are always burdened with suffering and hardships. The women, the burden of womanhood is a daily struggle encountered by women in all walks of life. Courts should not be meek and gentle when confronting, when confronted with instances that have all the traits of any attempt to keep women subjugated in any form at workplaces. So there you have it in the labor court, a judge quoting the Quran as the guiding light for his judgment. He doesn't explain why he used the particular verse. He obviously gets into the, um, into the merits of it and then he finds for the applicants, these, these women, and he says basically uh, SARS was wrong for having dismissed these women on that basis. But then it led me into a journey to see what, you know, where would he, where would he have found the authority and why did he take the trouble of quoting this as the verse of justice? Like he didn't go to the constitution to say women's rights are this, that and the other. He didn't go to any other form of publication to say I'm basing my argument and my reasoning on this as a start. But he kind of anchors, in my view, the discussion on justice and women and being fair and, and, and the, highest, the highest standard of fairness is to be just, even if it's against yourself, and not to not to bow down to anything. We, I think it's an immense, an immense recognition of the interest that perhaps people that are not in the dean are paying to the dean. Because if he takes inspiration from such a verse, he he must have he must have known something, or we don't know how he got there. But that was the judgment of Smanga Setehani, the acting judge. And then I looked at the appearances. Um, it was an Africana and, uh, you know, it was. Uh, so I thought maybe he would have got it from uh, maybe some counsel that was in, in the case, but it wasn't so. Then I decided, look, let me just see. Where else the Quran was mentioned? I don't know. Let, let's just stop to examine those comments before I move on, Shafa. I tell you, uh, you know, Ashraf, uh, perhaps uh, uh, the, the, the judge sounds to me, uh, you know, like a closet Muslim, maybe not uh, displaying uh, his uh, new Islamic name, but uh, that's uh, just by the way. But, you know, to, to, to uh, give a judgment by quoting the final testament, the ultimate, uh, you know, divine decree, the, the, the noble Quran, is so heartening. 
And, you know, to hear it, uh, you, uh, you, you know, laying down the, the, the whole scenario so eloquently really is fascinating. You got me gripped. And I'm sure, uh, you know, because this is a Christian country, it follows the Roman Dutch law. And here you bring in uh, the quotation of the noble Quran. And, you know, generally you get uh, maybe an Islamophobic, uh, you know, lawman there. Or the law will say, no, no, we, we follow the Roman Dutch law. You can't come and uh, quote the Quran, or neither can you uh, bring in the uh, Upanishad or the Sanskrit, uh, you know, and all these Vedas and all that. No, no, you can't bring in the Torah, neither. Uh, but uh, no, maybe the Torah or the uh, yeah, Bible, they can bring in Roman Dutch law. But uh, to bring in the Quran, so no one could object to that, uh, Ashraf, because it was so thorough and it was, uh, you know, the, the, the message was uh, pure. That's the word I've been looking for. Purity and it's in, in, in its pristine best form, Ashraf. Well, you know, the ex-Chief Justice Mokheng Mokheng openly proclaimed that he was a very strong Christian. He utilized his faith in his private capacity. Although he professed to be a outright firm Christian, nowhere did I see him quoting the Bible. I might be wrong uh, as, as a basis of inspiration. But here's what's fascinating about this judgment. The judge doesn't say why he used this opening statement, you see. He, 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 we're guessing that he found this inspiration. But it's interesting to note that how he would have got to, to this quotation on justice. Let's say I'm uh, doing research now to find a quotation of justice. I'll get Judge Brandeis from the Supreme Court of Appeal of the U.S. and I'll get another guy because this is what the Internet will put forward. So it's fascinating that he went into the depths of the Quran to find a verse, and, and this is not only verse on justice, but find a verse that aptly fitted these circumstances because he was he was very angry <laughs> with with the respondents in this matter i mean he was really critical of them so finding a, a verse of justice saying that maybe it was a message for himself that he must do it without uh, any fear or favor but then it took me to another journey shafat i I wanted to see how many times the, the Quran was quoted um, in the legal history. So let me just share with you how one does um, research, right, in, in law. There is a number of research bases, some that are free and some that you pay for. So as lawyers, we uh, a lot of young lawyers don't turn to the old sources of research, which of which there are two. It's called Jutastat. One is called Jutastat, and the other one uh, is called LexisNexis. Now, in Jutastat, in the old days, we had printed copies of all judgments. Um, some of them go back to the 1800s. And now, obviously, it's all digitized and electronic. So you can put in any word now. So, so Jutastat and, and LexisNexis are paid platforms. And then you have a thing called SAFLI, South African Legal Information Institute. 
S-A-F-L-I-I. This is a free database. So out of curiosity, I said, let me just um, type in the word Quran and see how many times it comes up. And the first one that it came up with, with, um, with, real, um, with real relevance was in uh, Muhammad versus the president. This was the 30th April decision, 2020. Now, you'll recall there was an application against the president to open the mosques and certain arguments were put forward. But here's what, what the judge says. Um, you know, it was quite interesting that he quoted the applicant's um, side of the affidavit in the following words in paragraph 16, where he quotes, now the applicant states, to this extent, the Quran enjoys us to perform five daily prayers, to do so in congregation, to perform our ablution before prayer, and to enter the house of worship in bare feet. So there was a, a basic education from the applicants who were then saying that mosques should be opened. But that is their use of, um, well, this is what the judgment quotes. They might have had a lot more extensive ex uh, explanations in their paper, but this is not borne out by the judgment. Then you remember the LRE versus Madresa Talimul Islam matter in KwaZulu-Natal 2020, where the guy was complaining about the Azan. Um, and there, that applicant was a Hindu gentleman, uh, I think in the Ispingo or somewhere. Yeah, in my area, it's a Pingo Beach. Yeah, loud. Right. Yeah. So, so there he, he said that he regarded Islam as a false religion and that he, he made some uh, uh, negative references to the Quran. So here, remember, I'm only judging how many times the Quran itself may or may not have been utilized in judgments. Then um, there was another interesting one in 2016, also between SARS and the CCMA. Um, but it, it was interesting. Eh? In, in its context, right, it was a discussion on the word kafir, or, you know, in the derogatory term, which I don't want to use in this country, it, it is uh, used to insult and denigrate a certain part of our population. But then they called on Gabiba Badrun to try and flesh out the history and meaning of the word and its implications. And, and she now goes to explain to the court, right, what kafir meant in, the, in the, its original form, if I, if I may say so. It wasn't, uh, you know, to, to, to sling mud or to intend violence. You know, it didn't have the other, it didn't have those, those uh, other connotations. And then she explains that the, the, the provenance of the, of the term kafir in South Africa is, is going back to historically where the settlers seem to have taken that this term must mean that the locals must be, they must be, they must be separated 
from the settlers, right? Which are the colonialists, right? We know that. Now, they then utilize the word, obviously, in its derogatory term. And I mean, there's a painful and, and very violent history regarding this. And the judge then, which was Mokhwen, and he, he tried to say how humiliating it was when it was used uh, in that in that manner. Okay, but she she helped the court to understand the originals or the original term uh, kafir was de derived from Arabic for non-believer or infidel. And and she says the root of kafir means closed, denoting someone who has closed their heart from the truth constituted by Islam. So there she gives this thing, right? And deriving from this root, the general meaning of kafir are those that are seen to deny the truth of Islam. So um, uh, the other version I heard before I come to uh, the Muslim presence dating back in uh, from 1658, eh? that is not, not when the Indians came, but the Muslim presence is from 1658, when the Dutch brought the uh, Muslims to Cape as slaves and servants. And this just just this 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 whole this whole interaction with the Muslims in the Cape actually gave rise to um, another judgment that recognized the importance of the Muslim contribution to Arabic. Uh, sorry, Muslim contribution of Arabic to Afrikaans. So the word that we're just examining now, Quran, how is Quran referred to in judgments? You will note Kurant, K-O-R-A-N-T in Afrikaans means newspaper. Mm. So there you have something that you read, which is the Quran, and something that is in Afrikaans referring to newspaper, which you read as Kurant. There's just one simple word. The second is earlier on we quoted the, the ayat is Azulzat al-Ardu. Art. Art in Afrikaans is earth. Art in Africa in Arabic is is the earth. Samawati wa art. So there you have it. The explanation of Quranic terms in the courts. But then there was a very interesting case in 1996. It, it was um, um, in the. It actually went all the way to the appeals court, which is the equivalent of. Uh, the uh, Constitutional Court. At that time, the appeals court was the highest. So you recall that in Muhammad versus Jasim, this was a uh, defamation case brought by Jasim against the MJC and uh, Sheikh Nazim. Because Sheikh Nazim said that he was a sympathizer of the Ahmadiyya. And he then he got sued, right, for uh, for defamation. Now, again, look at how the court, eh? this is the full bench now of the appeal court, looking at Muslim beliefs based on the Quran. 
and and they they actually saying the holy prophet was the last and the final prophet that's why that that that, that is why they couldn't accept mirza as the uh, prophet or any claim to prophet would but here's judges quoting muslim belief and they referring to the prophet in 1996 as the holy prophet and the final prophet and and the muslim belief sunni belief that no prophet could come after him uh you know whether mirza claimed to be a prophet in the literal or metaphorical sense um that that again they were not interested in uh, in in that so the importance of what i'm discussing is their reference to the quran and to the prophet as the holy prophet and they also said the holy quran you know so it wasn't so so they also regarded that as holy now just as a side uh, apart uh uh, uh, uh do you recall that in areas like page view where there were two mosques the 15th street and 23rd street mosque at the height of apartheid although those lands were emptied of the inhabitants which is that all the muslims were moved out of page view and the mosques including the mosque in kirk street including the habibia mosque which is a newtown mosque those mosques survived the group areas act so it you know you could see that there was a latent respect uh particularly by the uh national party but some of these mosques predate uh, predates the national party coming to power that places of worship were were respected i think in the cape you'll find that the uh, owl mosque is in district 6 but in loop street right on top near the turkish baths um not loop street what is long street uh is a very old mosque dating back to 1870 so there in the owl mosque they found a copy of the quran but without digressing too much uh it was in, it was very very interesting the recognition that um in the afri forum case um there was a case of afri forum recently 2022 judgment and chairperson of the council of unisa regarding africans as a medium of instruction and there again they brought into very very great detail how the cape muslim community came uh, to the country as slaves and then already by 1830 established afrikaans as their first language do you know afrikaans was written in arabic text first mm. so again you know a, a very interesting tapestry of history of the muslims the qurans and then you know that the quran was basically now forbidden for them to read and so although a lot of people you know uh, cast their eyes down on the malay practice of khadat etc they don't understand that is the only way they could teach quran because when the slave master asked them what are you doing they said we were singing so that singing way of reciting quran and salawat and teaching one another and keeping it alive was a ruse to go past the slave master but to keep the deen alive so it is very very interesting how people did things similarly uh, when ataturk came to power in turkey he banned the madrasas so then they 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 created madrasas as a 
as uh, uh, artisanal schools. So while you are learning to be a butcher, baker, and candlestick maker, you're actually becoming a Hafez al-Quran. So, you know, I suppose people always find ways uh, to keep the deen alive. But it was interesting that um, the observation that was made in the Constitutional Court regarding the Cape Malays Madrasa, um, the, you know, one of the oldest books um, that was authored prior to 1867 by Abu Bakr Effendi was titled Bayan al-Din. And this guidebook of Islam was written in Arabic Afrikaans. And I mean, it, it was the light of the, of the religion and thought of the uh, literature of the Cape Muslims. Now you'll also remember that Abu Bakr Effendi was sent by Queen Victoria as a uh, as a uh, viceroy, not viceroy, as a vicegerent to introduce and keep alive the Hanafi fiqh in um, in South Africa, which is more or less the time that the Indians came with the Hanafi fiqh from India. But independent of the Indians, can you imagine? Uh, Abu Bakr Effendi, being of Turkish origin, was given permission by Queen Victoria to come to South Africa and establish the Hanafi fiqh, which up to up to that point was predominantly Shafi, because of the uh, Batavia and that whole history behind that. So I hope that that little bit of uh, background and history into the Quran, how it was used in uh, judgments how it was referred to at the very early stages and still is referred to um, in the Constitutional Court, we, you know, would give some, someone a sense of understanding of how important they consider this to be. Just a point of correction, South Africa is not a Christian state. It's a constitutional democracy. No one religion is superior than, than the other. That is the theory of law. Mm. Although we follow the Christian calendar, which is Easter and Christmas, and we don't take religious holidays on other days. Um, but that is a topic for uh, for another day. Yeah, in other words, uh, the the Constitution is uh, predominant on everything, and uh, uh, it it uh, sets a precedence for everything. But uh, you know, Ashraf, I tell you, it was such a fascinating uh, conversation this evening that you know the other topic may be you know mind-boggling that uh, the Indian courts question whether Muslims can be declared socially and educationally backwards. Maybe that's for another time. Uh, you know, perhaps a quick thought of yours, uh, you know, thinking about what the Indians are doing when it comes to giving uh, or judging Muslims in that part of the world, Ashraf. So clearly this particular regime, um, Shabbat, I, I think you don't need to be a genius to figure out. Um, they're anti-Islam. The anti-Muslims, whenever they have an opportunity, the MP or somebody will uh, will attempt to slander uh, the, uh, the 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 Deen or Allah or the book. Um, they haven't gone to burning it yet, but they've uh, certainly uh, you know expanded their attacks. Um, I've seen some terrible views of, of videos of of people being oppressed. The, the Indians have to realize that they cannot wish away history. 
their greatest achievements, for example, just in one simple building called the Taj Mahal, that is not even a mosque. It was merely a man's, a man's reflection of his love for his deceased wife. That's all it was. But it was a beautiful building. It's a symbol of love worldwide. It is still visited by over 10,000 people a day. <laughs> they can deny whatever they want, uh, but they can't deny the fact that the Mughals uh, contributed greatly to the advancement of India in whatever form. Uh, Sultan Tipu was a typical example. He was Indian. Um, he devastated the British forces. And I must tell you, there's a little uh, side note here. There, there's, a, there's a line in the American National Anthem and the rockets that fly. Some say that they took that as an inspiration from the, the genius of Sultan Tipu when he took uh, Chinese firework rockets, he attached um, uh, swords on them and then he, 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 let it, he let it loose amongst the British cavalry, devastating effect. So when the Americans heard about that, they said, well, we now adopt the same thing in the rockets that fly. So um, you can see from there that you may want to deny whatever, but we know the truth will survive and falsehood will perish. Absolutely, Ashraf. And uh, mashallah, you know, you have uh, definitely taken a legal talk uh, to another level. Allah bless you for that. And perhaps your parting words uh, this evening. Well, always, I think we must also remember when we pray to give thanks to Allah for his favors and gratitude for whatever we've received and have. We, in many, many ways, Better off than, as you pointed out, in Europe, the price of food has gone up. It's winter. The price of heating, fuel, etc. They're in a bad way. Um, we must remember the people of Pakistan. We must remember the, the miskin wherever they are in the world. We don't know. But make dua for them. Make dua for ourselves, our own country, our people, our friends, the ummah. I know our people pray. They must continue to do so. I, I think for tonight, if we take inspiration from the fact that a judge took the trouble of studying the Quran in English and quoting it, we must try and do the same. Take the effort of reading the Quran in a language you understand. Of course, not forgetting the Arabic um, and, and putting it in uh, whatever way we can. He uses it as a basis for an opening statement in a judgment dealing with an injustice done to people. Let's see if we can't take a little bit of a line and use it in our own lives. Inshallah, Ashraf, Allah bless you once again uh, for brilliant content uh, this evening. You have a blessed evening ahead. I'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, sir, people, time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and Inshallah, we will continue after that.